Okay, well, first of all, once again, welcome to Gospel Church uh, for this uh, very special and different uh, Easter service meeting on a, on a Friday morning. Uh, so today and Sunday is going to form uh, a brief two-part series uh, called Death and Life. Uh, now, obviously, giving it the title Life and Death sort of sounds catchier, but in this case of Jesus, the order is the wrong way around. He died first and then there was new life. At, uh, so as, as the name kind of suggests, we'll broadly be looking at death and life uh, and also at the, uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what that actually means for us. And these are actually huge topics because they actually impact our, our daily life of, of death and life. So it's, it's all around us when, when you think about the, the world around us. Uh, death is such a, a commonplace thing. And it's, it's why I've, I've never actually been a fan of watching the news. I, I normally can't bring myself to do it. It's just horribly depressing watching the news. And so I thought to prove a point while I'm, making, while I'm writing this sermon, I'll, I'll watch the start of the news just to see how, how much I can put up with it. And uh, so I turned it on. And the first four stories were about two, two murders and two fatal car accidents. And that was about seven minutes into the, the news and I turned it off because I'd had enough already. So uh, it's kind of proved my point as to why I don't like watching the news. Um, maybe I'll watch it again in a few years' time, see if things have improved, but I'm, I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Um, so have you ever heard the phrase, death is a natural part of life? That it's... That it's all around us, there's, there's no escaping it. It's just the way things, the way things are. Uh, but I looked up some statistics and the uh, Ecology Global Network talks about how common it is. So it's 55.3 million people dying every single year, which with my trusty calculator uh, works out to be about 150,000 people a day, 6,000 an hour, 105 each minute. So nearly two people dying each second all over the earth. But I think the most significant stat that we often overlook is that 10 out of 10 people die. Shocking statistics, I know, but, um, but it'll happen to everybody. Everyone in the world, everyone in this room, it's going to happen, but we just try not to think about it. We ignore it as if it'll never happen to me. You know, I've probably got plenty of time. Maybe, but we don't know. I like this uh, quote by, by Millard Erickson, a, a theologian. He said, Everyone, at least intellectually, acknowledges the reality and the certainty of death, but there is often an unwillingness to face the inevitability of one's own death. We always think about it in terms of other people, not ourselves. So we only seem to see death as a tragedy if it, if it happens on a mass scale, if there's a natural disaster, an earthquake, a tidal wave, wiping out thousands of people. But we've already seen it's, it's already 150,000 people every day anyway. But just when it happens in one localized you know, uh, place, we all of a sudden see it as a, as a tragedy. Or maybe we'll see death as a terrible loss if it happens to someone young. But if all of a sudden you add a few decades and, well, they lived a good life, they had a good innings, it all of a sudden makes it okay. And that's because we as a culture have actually become numb to the reality and to the tragedy of, of death because of its inevitability. See, we see it as a natural part of life. Again, that phrase, oh, death is a natural part of life. But, but is it? Does it actually seem right? Is it just the way things are? Well, perhaps. I mean, it is the way things are. But is it supposed to be like this? There's something, something in us that says this isn't a good thing. 
And if there's a God who loves us and created us, then, how, then what went wrong? How did we end up in this predicament? How do we end up with a world filled with death and tragedy and, and disease and war and famine? Well, I, th I think the, the Bible actually provides us with some answers to the question you know, of whether death is a natural part of life. And so it's in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death is an, an enemy, an, an intruder that's come into the world that's not a natural part of God's creation. And that's actually exactly what we see when we go back to Genesis, the, the, the creation narrative. Uh, Genesis 2, 15, God, God creates, Adam and Eve creates humanity to live in God's presence. And then he says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God warns Adam and Eve that the punishment for sin is death. So it wouldn't be much of a warning if Adam was going to die anyway. If it was already just a natural part of life, then it's a bit of a, a pointless warning. But God created a good world, a world with no suffering, no pain, no death. Until sin, sin entered the world, rebellion against God resulted in his judgment. And so there's some debate uh, when, when looking into uh, commentaries on Genesis and, and theologians in general, they, they debate whether the, the you shall surely die, whether that refers to spiritual death or physical death. And, and a lot of that is to do with... Um, trying to fit in different views of, of evolution versus creation and things like that. They'll say it was just spiritual death entering the world, not, not physical death. But I think the scriptures actually teach that it's both. And even more than that, that there's a, a threefold consequence of, of sin. So that's uh, here, spiritual death, physical death, and then finally eternal death. So I just want to uh, briefly go into those, those uh, three categories to, to see... Uh, how the fall has actually affected affected us. So the first one is, is spiritual death. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, uh, says that we were actually born dead in our sins, by nature, children of wrath. So that means that every human after the fall was born in a state of rebellion against God. So we were originally created to worship God, to live in His presence, and humanity originally did. But we don't see that anymore, do we? We see us living for ourselves. We live for self-gratification, self-satisfaction. We worship created things. We, we love ourselves more than we love others. And we even love ourselves and others more than we love God. So this uh, sinful nature, this, this state of spiritual de death manifests, manifests itself in in all the sorts of ways we see in the world, it's, it's the reason why the news is so depressing to watch. It's why there's always more bad news than good news. It's why there's wars, violence, greed, and corruption. And even as I list those things, our natural tendency is to compare ourselves to others, to go, well, at least I'm not the one creating wars and violence and famine and greed and corruption. And that's because it's our human nature to compare ourselves to others rather than to compare ourselves to God's standards. But when we compare ourselves to God's standards, we fail in our actions, in our words, in our treatment of others, even our thoughts and affections. We, we fail to worship God, even though that's exactly what we were created for. 
But, but worse than that, we're actually spiritually dead, un unable to fix ourselves and change ourselves and save ourselves. Now, we're definitely capable of change in some ways, but, but not in the direction that's really needed, turning toward God and away from ourselves. So people often refer to salvation as we're, we're drowning in the water and God reaches out his hand and we just need to grab hold of him or he, he lets down a life raft and we need to climb aboard or he throws out a lifesaver and you just need to reach out and grab it. But I don't think that's an accurate picture of salvation. I, I think we're, we're already dead. We're drowned in the water and God comes and breathes life into us. See, our problem isn't just that we've broken a few laws of God. It's that we violate God's laws because we are lawbreakers by nature. It's, it's a part of who we are. And so as a result of human sinfulness, death came into the world. And so I asked the question before, why is there death in the world? Is, is it a natural part of life? No, we see from the scriptures that it's a consequence of sin. And so the second one is, is physical death. So Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And again, some would suggest that this verse only refers to a spiritual state, not, not physical death. But in the text in, in Genesis, it clearly seems to be describing physical death as well. It's in Genesis 3.19. It says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. So that sounds like physical death to me. But then the third consequence of sin is actually our eternal death. So uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, and just as it is appointed for man once to die once, and after that comes judgment. And Jesus said, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So this is, this is Jesus' words talking about the, the consequence of sin, not just spiritual death, not just physical death, but beyond that, God judges sin. And, and so we, when we hear that severe punishment for sin, that should really make us stop and think about how serious our sin actually is. But so far, this message has been pretty bleak, right? The world has fallen, everyone's fallen, we're all going to die and face God's judgment, and to top it off, there's nothing that we can do to change ourselves or save ourselves. So if we're up to, up to us, then there wouldn't be much hope in the world. But is there hope? Is there, is there a way of undoing this? And, and that, when you really think about it, that becomes the most important question in the world. When we recognize our state, that we can't turn to God, but we need to turn to Him in order to be saved, in order to escape uh, th this death, the eternal death that, that awaits us? Well, the Bible actually provides answers for that. And so although things go catastrophically wrong so quickly, when you, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's all great, and then Genesis 3, it's already fallen, humanity has already sinned against God. But the rest of the Bible is, is God's uh, record of history of, of saving humanity, of calling a people back to himself so that they can be restored, so they can do what they were created to do, which is worship him. And the entire rescue plan climaxes in the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be celebrating today in this Good Friday. Uh, but before I expand on that too much, um, 
There are actually Old Testament historical narratives that actually point us towards God's ultimate plan. There's all these uh, what they call types and shadows throughout the Old Testament, stories that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's actually really important, although uh, these Old Testament stories aren't anywhere near as, uh, as awesome as God's fulfillment of Christ, you know, the Old Testament systems um, were inferior to what Jesus has accomplished. But when we look back to them, we can actually learn more about what Christ has accomplished. And so that's why we're going to actually look back at a, a story in the book of Exodus that, that really shows just how, how just God is, but also how merciful he is to his people. And this is, this is called the Passover. And so when we, when we get a, a better understanding of the Passover, I think it will help us understand uh, even more of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Okay, so just a, a quick recap of the book of Exodus. So at the start of the book of Exodus, uh, the people of, of Israel end up in, in Egypt and in, in, a, in a positive way. Everything is all going well. They're, they're thriving, they're growing, uh, until all of a sudden there's a new Pharaoh who enslaves them. They're meant to be the people of God living in a promised land, and instead they're in slavery in Egypt. And they're being worked to death under a cruel regime. And then God intervenes and and tells a guy called Moses that he's going to rescue his people out of Egypt. And so God sends, and I would recommend you go go home and and read the whole story. It's an, an amazing story of God sending plague after plague after plague, and the Pharaoh just continually, stubbornly refuses to let uh, let God's people go until finally there's God's most severe judgment which can come against sin, which is, is death. And so in this case, it's the death of every firstborn in the nation. And so then we get to Exodus 12, which was, was read out earlier on, and God institutes the first Passover. So the people of Israel were told to, to take and to kill a lamb, uh, and then they were to take the blood and paint it on the doorframe. And then they, they ate the lamb with, with unleavened bread. Uh, and so that was the first far, uh, Passover feast. And then God sent the final plague to Egypt. And death came to the firstborn in every household except the ones in which there was blood over the doorframe. And then finally, after all of that, the Pharaoh finally lets the people of Israel go. And they're freed from slavery, free to enter the, the land that God had promised to them. So that story seems pretty foreign to us. It, it can seem a bit weird of, of killing a lamb and putting the blood on the doorpost to, to save the firstborn son so that people can escape judgment and, and uh, escape slavery and end up in a, a new land. But that's, that's the, uh, the formation of the nation of Israel. And that's why Jews still, still celebrate the Passover today, actually this, starting from this weekend. But what can we learn from this seemingly weird story. What, what are the big key points that we learn from the Passover? So firstly, God warns of coming judgment. He's not a God who responds like we do. Our, our natural inclination is to, uh, to lash out unpredictably, but, but God is, is slow to anger and patient, and he, and he gives people time to repent. He, he sends a warning to Pharaoh first that he, that he had an opportunity to repent and let the people of Israel go before this final plague came. It's not out of frustration or retaliation. It's out of God's justice and his goodness that he judges. But it's also because of his mercy that he actually provides a warning of coming judgment. People have time to repent and even accept and embrace his means of salvation. 
Okay, so secondly, the thing that we learn from the Passover story is that death is the punishment for sin. And we've already seen this so far, that sin leads to death because it's the just punishment and logical consequence. And it's also because God is the one who gives us life. We're sustained by being in relationship with Him. And so when we're separated from God, who is our life giver, the inevitable consequence is death. And thirdly, and I think this, this is a really important one, is that there are no good guys. It's, it's, it's really easy in all of these stories to see, see it as good guys versus bad guys, the good, good guys triumphing over the baddies, um, good versus evil. We, we like that, that type of story in basically every movie that Hollywood has, has put out. Um, and, and in this case, we can see Israel with the good guys and, and Egypt with the baddies. But the people of Israel weren't actually innocent. So everyone is guilty before God. And so when death was coming to the firstborn, it wasn't just the Egyptians that had reason to fear. The Israelites did too. That's why they had to um, institute the Passover. So the Israelites had just as much fear, uh, reason to fear God's judgment, except for the fourth point, which is that God provides a substitute. So a lamb that would die instead of them. A lamb had to die in their place. And then so when God's judgment comes, and it did, the Jews didn't need to fear because those who had received God's provision of salvation were instead they were rescued. And so as and, and basically God's judgment would pass over the household. That's where we get the name Passover from. So it's a brilliant story in which we learn about God's judgment, but also his mercy toward his people providing a substitute to be judged in their place. And I'm sure some of you can, can figure out where I'm going with it, but, but what does the Passover story have to do with Easter? Why preach on that today? And I think there's actually several reasons why they're, why they're connected, why the Passover and, and Easter are so closely connected. Uh, so my first reason is they actually have the same name. So uh, it doesn't seem as obvious to us right now in English, but in, in the Old Testament, the Passover, the word in Hebrew is Pesach uh, or or uh, Pascha in, in, in the Greek. Uh, and, and then when we look at various um, languages around the world for Easter, we realize they actually just use the same word for Passover. So I've got a whole bunch of languages here from Albanian to Azerbaijani, all the way down to Turkish and Welsh. They basically all say Pascha, the, basically the word for Passover, until finally at the top we have Easter. So English kind of goes and ruins that trend and, and makes the connection less obvious. But um, so when you have lots of people saying, you know, Easter was just a, um, a, a pagan festival that the, the Christians went and ripped off, you know, Easter comes from Easter, all that kind of stuff, that only works in English. If, you know, anywhere else, uh, you know, you're speaking any of these languages, it, it's really obvious that Easter is the, the fulfillment of the Passover. That's, that's what they're really celebrating. Uh, and the second connection is not only do Passover and Easter have the same name, they're celebrated on the same same date. Um, and that, that's the case this year. I'm not sure if that's the case every year, but the, the start of the Passover, the Jewish feast is today on, on Good Friday. But I'm not referring to just now. I'm actually referring to uh, during the time of Jesus in, in the first century. It's the New Testament that makes this connection. Because when uh, Jesus is meeting with his disciples and instituting uh, the, the Last Supper, they're actually celebrating the Passover meal. They're, they're having a Passover feast together, and that's where he, he then institutes the, la, uh, the, the Lord's Supper. 
And that's where the new covenant is actually fulfilling the old covenant, including things like the Passover. And then finally, the third reason why there's a connection is, is Paul does it. In, in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Paul says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So clearly Paul and clearly the New Testament teaches that Christ is fulfilling the Passover. And so what I noticed though is that when I, when I went through the, the list of the things that we learned from the Passover, I realized we actually learned the exact same things from the cross of Christ. So again, just like the Passover in the cross of Christ, we, we learn that God's judgment is coming. He takes sin seriously and the punishment for sin is, is death. And we already know that that judgment is coming because we see it all around us every day. A world filled with death and seemingly without hope. But the fact that we're, we're going to die actually it serves as a warning. It gives us time to repent and get right with God. See, God is gracious by warning us that there is a final judgment day. He's not under any obligation to let us know that it's coming and to, to provide us a warning, but He does to give us time to repent, to, to cling to His means of salvation. And again, just like the, the, the Passover, in the, in the cross of Christ we learn that there are no good guys other than God. This is not good guys versus bad guys, righteous versus unrighteous, and and unfortunately, that can be a, a really common uh, train of thinking, it w even within the church, is this idea that good people go to church and, and everyone else are the sinners. That in order to be saved by God, you need to earn His favor by living a good life. But all we have, there are only two options, either, either sinners or sinners who have been forgiven by a good and gracious God. They are your only two options. So if you try and work your way to heaven, you will fail. We'll all fail because we've all broken God's law already. And because we're spiritually dead, we're unable to change and save ourselves. So it's only when we reach that point, when we, when we recognize our state of helplessness, that, that we actually realize our need for God's provision and His salvation. And that's what we have in that fourth point. God provides a substitute. And that, that reason right there is why we actually celebrate the death of Jesus and call it Good Friday. So it seems kind of weird, you know, celebrating the resurrection makes sense. Celebrating our Saviour dying seems really odd until we realise what He was actually doing for us. When Christ went to the cross, He was dying for you. He was dying for me, He was dying for all of His people to save the world from their sins. And we can go into detail of all the, the horrific things that he faced of, of being beaten and whipped and wearing a crown of thorns and having nails put in his hands and feet. But the real agony was the, of the cross was that he was actually bearing our sins. The sins that you have committed this week, today, in all of your life, God was, in Jesus Christ, was taking those sins upon Himself and being punished by the Father. He was dying as a substitute in your place. And when He was dying to save you, He, he knew everything about you. He knew all the sins that you would commit, even the ones that you haven't done yet, but He still loved you enough 
and loved you so much to die for you, to make a way to save you. And, that, and this, is, this is the only way that a just and holy God can forgive our sins, is, is to send a substitute, someone who can take our punishment for us. God isn't unjust. He's not going to simply overlook our sins. He needs to punish our sins. But by doing this in Christ, we can now ask Him for forgiveness. We can come through Christ and we can be confident that He can save us. He can forgive us because of what Christ has done. And so when God's judgment comes, when He sees the blood of Christ applied to us, He passes over. Just like He passed over the people of Israel, they were spared from His judgment. We can be too. When, when we put our trust in Christ, God's judgment passes over, over us. But not only did he die, I'm totally going to give away Sunday service and say that he rose again from the dead. I'm not waiting until Sunday to let you know that. So, and when he, when he rose again, he conquered death to give us eternal life. So instead of just simply being saved from our sins, he actually calls out a people for himself, just like he did in Egypt, calling out the people, taking them to the promised land. It wasn't just simply sparing them from judgment. It was giving them something that they don't deserve. And, and we get the exact same thing. We don't just get forgiven and rescued and reconciled with God. We actually get to have eternity with him. So Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God offers eternal life as a free gift. We, we, we naturally think that there's always got to be a catch. You've, you've got to do something, surely. You know, there's, there's an offer too good to be true. What do I have to do? But if we think of it in terms of what we have to do to earn God's favor, then we've completely missed the point of the gospel, which is when he died, he took care of all of your sins. All that's left to do is to trust in him, give him all the glory, all the credit and all the praise. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and He will save you. So Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. So we don't actually know when we're going to die. And that's why we need to call upon Him now. He's the only one that can save us from death and save us from the judgment to come. He's the only one that can give you eternal life. He's the only one that can reconcile you with God. But we must call upon Jesus. And so, so if you haven't done that before, then, then I would urge you to do, do it now while you actually still have time to put your trust in Jesus. He's our, our Passover lamb, our, our substitute that died in our place. And he will save you. He's proven himself to be trustworthy, not just in his death, but in his resurrection as well. And that's why we can trust him, not just with our life, but with, with our eternity. And for those of us who, who already know him, this should cause us to, to celebrate that, that God would, would actually be so, so kind to us. It shouldn't ever be something that we just get used to, that, that we become blasé about. It, you might have been saved decades ago, but it still should astound us that Christ would actually be willing to die for us. Not just because of who we once were, the, the, the sins that we used to commit, but also what we've done since being saved. God knew exactly who we would be for all the days of our lives and He still chose to die for us and to save us anyway. That's how much He loves us. So that's the reason why we praise Him. That's why we're gathered here today to, to celebrate it and call it Good Friday. Uh, so, But 
again, if, if you're still figuring out things like that of, of where you stand with the gospel, if you're still unsure um, about it, then come and talk to talk to me after the service. I'd be happy to, to pray with you. Um, or if, if you realize your need to trust in Jesus, then, then pray where you are now. Trust in him now. It's uh, there, There's no catch to it. There's no... Uh, special set prayer just ask God to forgive you and trust that Jesus Christ died for you that's all you need to do and he will save you so let's let's pray now gracious father we thank you for your goodness to us we thank you that you made a way for us to be saved a way to be reconciled to you we thank you for the cross we thank you that that Jesus was not just able but willing to go to the cross for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to shed your blood to atone for our sins. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your unconditional love that you give us so freely. And Lord, if there's people that do not know you here, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would save them. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just remember this message now, but we would be bold and, and willing to, to take, it, uh, take it to the community around us and take it to the world, to, to offer hope, to offer life in a world full of death. Help us to not get distracted by the things of this world, but to put our hope our trust in you, not just for here and now, but for eternity. And so we thank you and praise you for all that you've done for us. Amen.